And as William said, we're, we're starting a new series on, on the idea of hope. And it would be an understatement to say that even before coronavirus and before 2020 hit, we were in a world that was in the process of beginning to freak out. Now, we maybe didn't see it on the news channels we watched, and we maybe didn't see it on our day-to-day life, but there was beginning to be a collective feeling that things were beginning to not go as they should have been. I thought I'd read you some of the, these are some books, book titles that have come out in the past few years before coronavirus, and, and here's some of the titles of them. One of them is called How Liberalism Failed. Another one, The Death of Democracy. The death of, another one's called The Death of Truth. Another book came out and it was simply called What Happened. Another one was called Fascism, A Warning. Another one was called How, Demo- How Democracy Dies, What History Reveals About Our Future. And finally, there was another one that came out that was just simply called Fear. Collectively, we live in a society that was beginning to freak out that was beginning to realize that the promises that they thought they'd been told by a wonderful, wonderful secular view of the world were beginning to not quite take hold. We'd been sold this wonderful view of what the world was gonna be like. And for the past 300 years, we'd believed in it. I I mentioned it one time before, it gets called the wiggest view of history. And what that meant was history was this giant arc and things could only get better that progress was only ever gonna come. We were only ever gonna get richer, we were only ever gonna get happier, and we were only ever gonna get healthier. And all of the developments in our society were tools to get us there. So we thought as we became more technologically advanced and we got the internet, we'd be more connected with each other and we'd have a better relationship with the world around us. We thought that as we saw our healthcare improve that we'd be able to get what we needed when we needed. We looked around and saw that nations like ours, like the UK, were beginning to be involved in less wars, and we thought, maybe peace is coming. And then, in the past few years, things began to go wrong. Studies began to show that as societies became more technologically advanced, their productivity actually went down. So in economies like ours, rather than it going up with the more technology we got, studies are showing that actually the reverse happens and it goes down. We thought we were entering this wonderful, peaceful world, and we began to see wars erupting in the Middle East. And most scarily, do you remember back in the beginning of 2020, in a world prior to coronavirus, whenever we worried that there might be a new war with Iran over oil? We thought we would get healthier, and we thought we would get happier. And yet, how many of us know of somebody or are struggling ourselves with something to do with mental health? And the, the cultural anxiety that we feel, and you have no doubt know people who, who are feeling it, is a canary in the coal mine telling us that there is something about this, this view of, 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 of our, our world that is wrong. That this idea that we will only get happier and healthier, and if we could set all the religion stuff aside and become more secular, we will only get better that there's something wrong with that worldview and there's something wrong with that as a way to, to build your life upon it because we see how it's breaking down before us. And then March hit. And suddenly we were trapped in our own homes for six months. And there was a French philosopher, Pascal, who said that a lot of, the majority of what men try to spend their time doing is 
trying to avoid spending time with themselves in a lo- alone in a room. Because once we're alone with ourselves in a room, we are faced with things that we, we'd, we'd rather leave untouched. And we've seen a world that, that needs hope and a world that has cut itself off from the very source of hope in this world because it thinks that the only way things will get better is if they get rid of God. And yet, and yet we see time and time again that that is cutting yourself off from the life-giving force that created this whole world. That's cutting yourself off from hope. And what we see in this passage is the wonderful hope that Christians have to offer the world. There was a missionary called Leslie Newbegin who, who was once asked, um, how should Christians view the world? And he said uh, that they should neither be an optimist nor a pessimist, but they should, they should know that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And that truth that we believe and we hold on to with, with, with such tender care that we worship a, a risen savior is a big enough truth, a solid enough truth, and a life-giving enough truth to offer hope, not just for us in here this evening, but to offer a, a big enough hope that the whole world can benefit from. Because it is a hope that says that there is a God who is real, a God who has a plan, a God who has given us a promise, and a God who is actively acting in people in the world like you and me in in small, almost unperceivable ways, but acting nonetheless and changing us day by day. That we are not alone drifting on this giant cosmic asteroid through the universe, but we were made with purpose by a God who had a plan for us and had a wonderful, wonderful plan of redemption for us. That we might not look for our hope in something in this world, but we would know that our hope could come from something that was outside of this world that could come from him. And so Paul, summing up the Christian hope, reaches a crescendo in these last few verses of this sentence. This, is, this reading is, is, is 200 words in the original and it, it rises as we work our way through it to this wonderful line, if you look down in verse 11, it says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. The first thing we see this evening that gives us wonderful hope is that there is a plan there is a plan that God is acting out in all of creation. And that plan that God has been acting out in all of creation is, is that we do not have to be burdened by our sin each and every day. That we do not have to be content that we will live our, our, our years in this life and disappear into the soil and have nothing more. But we know and have hope and have certainty that God is working in us, freeing us from our sin and redeeming us to have a intimate and personal relationship with him each and every day. 
that we are not just cosmic dust floating through space, but we are creatures created with purpose and with a plan for a personal relationship with a God who has crafted everything in this world around us for the sole purpose of redeeming sinners like us. And that is why it says that he has a plan that we were chosen in him, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. There has never been a point in all of time, in all of space, whenever God has not actively been acting to redeem you and save you and liberate you and bring you into a relationship with him. There has never been a second which you have not been part of his plan to save you. Everything in all of creation has been working towards that. And I wonder, how does that change maybe the way we view the gospel? Do we sometimes think that yes, we've been forgiven, but we've had that sin that has plagued us far too long that we can't seem to get rid of and and God's really not gonna forgive us until we get rid of that. Or maybe we think that whenever we sin, we need to go through a period of feeling really bad about ourselves and feeling really guilty before God will actually forgive it. Or maybe we feel that we need to feel ashamed of ourselves enough to somehow earn God's forgiveness. When really what God is showing us is that his grace has been working on you before you were even born before your grandparents were born, and before your great, 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 great grandfather or grandmother were even born. He was working through all of creation to redeem you specifically. Because grace is not reactionary. Sometimes we think it's reactionary, you know, we, we sin and so God had to find a way to redeem us somehow, so we sent his son begrudgingly to die on the cross for us because he had to deal with sin. But, but that was all part of the plan. The plan that has always been the one and only plan. From time, from very beginning right up until now, the plan was God would show grace to sinful people like us by sending his son. And that no matter how sinful we were, he would still show that grace. It wasn't that we would mess up and he would change his mind. It wasn't that he would forgive us thinking that, oh, maybe they'll do it better next time. He forgave us knowing exactly how sinful we were, exactly how many times we would mess up, exactly how much we would be plagued with that sin that seems to clog our heart. And he, he redeemed you anyway and he saved you anyway because that was always part of the plan and that has always been the plan and there was no plan B. That was the plan that he would send his grace to sinful people like us who didn't deserve it and who he knew didn't deserve it and it would change us in an amazing way. And that is the the promise we read about across all of the Bible. And like in Romans 5 where it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly or or we'll we'll read later in, in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God had to give us life Or in Jeremiah 31, verse three, that 
God promises that he has loved us, not with a a love that started at some point, not with a love that started whenever we had a conversion experience, not with a love that started when we were born, but with a love that was everlasting, that has no beginning point and so can have no end point. That God has never stopped loving you because he never started loving you because his plan of redemption for you has always been in existence. And that is why we have hope because we love him because he first loved us. And that's the promise we see. If you look at verse 13, it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. Now, we could skip over something quite quickly here without noticing what's going on and and, and how amazing this is. Do you look down at verse 13? And it says, and you. But yet if you look up at verse 11, it begins, and in him we. So there's a change in pronoun from we to you. And what Paul's doing there is that in the previous verse, the Jews would have kind of already believed that about themselves. The Jews um, who who Paul was one of would have thought that, you know, we were God's chosen people upon the face of the earth. And the Gentiles would have always felt like outsiders to the God that we worship now. And we've had 2,000 years of the gospel going forth to Gentiles, to people who weren't Jewish like us. And so we can sometimes lose the gravity of what Paul is doing here. And I think we can sometimes forget just how almost exclusionary early Judaism was. And I found one commentator who summed it up really great in a paragraph. He said this, that the first century Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile, Gentiles people like us. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel for all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Jewish girl, or if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, sorry, a funeral was held for them. Such, was the, such contact with a Gentile was equivalent to death. And then Paul off the back of that says, but now, but now, you also are included in Christ that through Jesus, this wonderful, wonderful plan that God had of redeeming people throughout all of time expands and explodes out to a scale that was unfathomable to the religious leaders at the time because it incorporated not just the people of Israel, but it included people like us here in Mays in Northern Ireland to people across the whole world as God's grace extended that the gospel that we are now experiencing, we experience because we have it in Christ. It's in him that all of these blessings are found. It is in him that all of our hope is found. And it is in him that we see the wonderful gospel that we hear about so much carried out. Because all of the promises of the Bible find their yes in Christ, not in good behavior, not in how good a person we think we are, 
not in our best efforts, but in Christ. And so the most important question we can ask ourselves is, are we in Christ or do we think we could do without him? Are we in him or are we out of him? Because none of the blessings and none of the promises of God can be found any other way. And if you're a Christian here this evening, that means that on the days whenever you do not feel like you are a Christian, and we all have those days, those days whenever you feel that you've messed up once too many times, you do not look into yourself because looking into yourself only brings, only brings discouragement. But we look into Christ, into our Savior, who is our rock and our redeemer, who never changes. As one Puritan, Samuel Rutherford put it, says that believe God's word and power more than you believe in your own feelings or experiences. Your rock is Christ. And it is not your rock that ebbs and flows, but the sea. We cling to the rock, our Christ, our Savior, our Lord, because though we may be in a sea of situations that we hate and despise and we feel are testing, it is not our rock that moves, but the sea. Or I think it was summed up really well by another guy, R.C. Sproul, when he said that we are not secure because we hold tightly to Jesus. We are secure because Jesus holds tightly to us. And that is why then we can see that this third wonderful promise, which we'll start reading from the second half of verse 13, that says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We might be tempted to rely on our feelings to trust in. We might be tempted to rely on our behavior to trust in. But really we rely on Christ because it is in him and marked by his Holy Spirit that God looks at you and declares mine. Not, not that you will be snatched out of his hand because we, we do not worship a God who's in the habit of losing things but we worship a God who holds all of eternity in his hand and he looks at you and he says, mine. And so as Christians, we have hope because we are secure in him, marked with his sign and his seal, that we are not this world's, but we belong to God. I think it's summed up really well um, in, in the Heidelberg Catechism, which is the catechism that would be used by a, a lot of the continental reformed churches. And the first question is this, what is my only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful, faithful savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So why do we have hope to offer the world? We have hope because we believe that we are not random accidents, 
but there is a plan. And that plan is simply this, that sinful people like us who sin, who mess up time and time again, God is acting, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with one sole purpose in all of time and all of history, to draw you to himself, that you might be his most treasured possession, that he might declare mine. And let's pray. Father, we thank you for this hope, for this grace and for this promise. How wonderful it is and how good you are and would we praise your name forevermore. Amen.